Welcome to Exploring Bible Prophecy with our host, Steve Butler. On today's program, our series entitled, The Second Coming Versus the Rapture, as he opens God's Word to study the difference between the rapture and the second coming. It's time to explore Bible prophecy. Hello and welcome to Exploring Bible Prophecy. In our last program, we did a review of the first three points in our handout on the differences between the rapture of the church and the second coming of Christ. And that handout, if you don't have one, you can find that at the uh, radio station website, whcbradio.org. They have graciously provided that for your use to follow along here because we as you can see from the handout, uh, there are a lot of scriptures that talk about the rapture of the church and talk about the second coming of Christ. And our point here is using the scriptures to show that there is a significant difference and significant um, difference in purpose as well as um, content between those two particular events. And in doing the review, it was basically bringing uh, those up to speed that have been following along with us over the the basic concept of what the rapture is, and that's Jesus Christ coming from heaven uh, to the clouds to take his church back to heaven with him before the tribulation begins, and then coming at the second coming, which would be at least seven uh, or more years after the rapture to come back with his church, which he has now married. So it's no longer his bride, it's his wife, according to Revelation 19. Comes back to the earth after the tribulation to judge the world um, that uh, is refused to accept Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, refused to see him as their Messiah. So um, hopefully that was a benefit to you, because what we want to do going forward here now is to break down the basics that we've been looking at, because there are so many truths to be gained by looking at each of the, the Scripture passages, at looking at each of the verses, because God is so gracious to, uh, to give, his, give his word in such detail throughout the Bible. Um, that we would be uh, remiss, if you will, in not spending uh, time to diligently study his word because he wants us to know him, God wants us to know him, Jesus wants us, wants us to know him, and we need to understand all about the third member of the triune Godhead, the Holy Spirit, because we know that he wants nothing more when he comes into our lives at the moment we accept Jesus as our Lord and Savior, comes into our lives and wants to work in us and through us to lead us into an understanding of who God is by the study of his word. He wants to explain the word to us, but we have to take the time to do it. So what we want to do, uh, looking at uh, point number four in our handout here, and looking under the rapture column, it says, caught up with him in the air, in the clouds, to be with him wherever he is forever. And that is a lot of information in that short little statement that uh, we want to start to uncover here in uh, this particular point at point number four. And by way of review, and again, 
you may ask yourself that uh, if you've been with us for a while here in not only this series but other series, why do we go back and look at the same scriptures uh, two, three, four times over a period of programs? And the idea is that we're really doing what uh, what Paul did, what Peter did. You find often is repetition is good because not only as you read something more than once that you see something that you didn't see the time before, but we have to understand that unlike any other book written in the history of mankind, these words are the words of Creator God, and they are living words. And you literally will see the same verse or the same passage of verses in one way, and the next time, because you've grown in your knowledge of the Lord and of God and the workings of the Holy Spirit, you'll see something additional or you'll see something entirely new. And I've actually seen that take place as a Sunday school teacher and as a teacher of um, how to study the Bible. It could be literally the seventh, eighth, tenth time that a scripture is brought up during a study and someone will say, I see something now, this tenth reading that I never saw before. So repetition is good, and I hope you never tire of reading God's Word uh, wherever it is, Genesis to Revelation. And just because it's one of the Old Testament books doesn't mean that it's of any less import uh, than the greatest of what your passage, favorite passage may be in the New Testament. So let's go to Acts chapter 1, Acts chapter 1 here, and let's look at the um, things to be learned about being caught up with him in the air, in the clouds, to be with him. And in Acts chapter 1, Jesus has now um, finished his ministry on the earth. He has been crucified, buried, and resurrected, and has walked with the men of Jerusalem, um, it says uh, in 1 Corinthians 15, over 500 people saw him at any one time. So there were people who were able to see him in his glorified, resurrected body. But the point here is that at the very end of this, he takes um, his apostles and he goes up to the Mount of Olives, which is right across the Kidron Valley from Old Jerusalem and the Temple Mount. So this whole area geographically is, is really quite close together. Um, that you don't appreciate living here in the United States, for instance, and we have this great uh, width and breadth and so forth of the uh, the country that everything is real close together in, in Israel because it's basically the size of New Jersey, and Jerusalem is quite small for a national uh, capital. So uh, here he is on the Mount of Olives with the uh, apostles, And it says in Acts chapter 1, verse 9, And after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. Verse 10, And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. Verse 11, They also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. So the the point of this, not only for the edification and understanding of the apostles who witnessed this happen, but the point of explaining this um, by the angels to the apostles and and therefore to us, to anyone that reads this, 
is to have, uh, if you will, a a mental image, a mind's view of what this concept of being caught up with him in the air in the clouds would be like, that it's literally a lifting up off the earth is what we will do. For instance, if the rapture happens right now, and wouldn't that be wonderful, we would be lifted off the earth just as Jesus was there in Acts chapter 1, and we would go into the clouds, and we would uh, leave this earth and go to heaven take on our, our our glorified bodies, and we would be with the Lord forever. What a wonderful, wonderful thing to not only think about, but to hope about. And actually, the word hope in the New Testament, the Greek word means confident expectation. So we have a confident expectation of doing just what Jesus did here in Acts chapter 1, lifting off the earth. So that's the imagery that we have that uh, when we start now next to read in 1 Thessalonians about the rapture, we can have a mental image of, of what that's going to be like. So let's do that. Let's go now to 1 Thessalonians to probably what um, just a casual uh, student of the Bible, don't have to be a theologian, a casual student of the Bible would probably agree is the best uh, rapture passage uh, for the uh, comforting of the church in the whole Bible. And, of course, you wouldn't find this in the Old Testament because it was a mystery, as we've uh, already studied in a prior program in this series. So going to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and looking at the rapture passage, which is contained in verses 13 through 18, and I'll read those uh, now. Uh, so 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve, as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. So what a, what a rich passage of hope that we have here. And looking at verse 13, it talks about so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. That hope is the hope of eternal life with Jesus that begins with the rapture, then the, the Bema Seat judgment, when we're judged for our works here on the earth, not for our sins. We're going to heaven. In fact, we're in heaven at that point, but we will simply receive uh, blessings and rewards for the work that we've done here. But there are going to be so many people and it's so unfortunate, but so many people that have lived on this earth since the time of, of um, really Cain, who uh, committed the first sin when he killed Abel, 
from that point on, all these people who have no hope of eternal life with the Lord because they know that their eternal life will be separated from the Lord, and eternal life separated from the Lord is called hell. A, a terrible thought, a terrible place. So looking here at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 17, to um, get specifically to the point here in number 4, it talks about caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air so that we will always be with the Lord. So the idea of being caught up, not only our souls being caught up, uh, excuse me, our bodies being caught up to meet our souls, our spirits in the air, because our spirits have been in heaven if we've already, if a loved one has already died in the Lord, that spirit is coming back and the body will be matched up from out of the graves, from wherever that person is. And even if that person is not in one piece, uh, it's God's uh, creation, and he will bring that body back whole and complete and will uh, marry it up, if you will, with the spirit that comes from heaven. And then those who are alive in bodily form on the earth, the moment of the rapture, that body will not see death. It will rise up. Uh, to meet the Lord in the air, to become glorified and um, in an um, immortal body, and we will be with the Lord forever. So two points to catch up in the air, and the other point in verse four, or in uh, point four, is we will be with the Lord forever, and that is to be a, a comforting thought. So let's build on that idea of going to meet the Lord and that we will be with him forever. And that's found in the second of um, three uh, clear rapture passages, and that's in John, the book of John. So if we go back to the left from 1 Thessalonians, past those short epistles of Paul, and to 1 and 2 Corinthians, to Romans, to Acts, and then we get to John. And we go to John chapter 14. And you may recall from prior programs, we talked about John chapter 14 being in the um, section of John from John chapter 13 to John chapter 17 that's called the Upper Room Discourse. And this Upper Room Discourse is Jesus talking to the apostles about what the future is going to be, the future in what is called the church age. And this is uh, compared, if you will, and, and shown to be different from Jesus talking to these same apostles, a smaller group of them, albeit, but a smaller group of these same apostles when he's sitting on the Mount of Olives in what is called the Olivet Discourse. And we find that, uh, for instance, in Matthew 24, where he's talking about the destruction of the temple, and he's letting them know that it's going to be a very difficult time for the world, and particularly a difficult time for Israel as they go through the tribulation period because they have refused to accept the Messiah during the um, what is called the church age, the 2,000-year time frame that we're finishing up now, uh, that they're going to have to go through the tribulation. But Jesus changes his whole frame of reference when he talks to these same apostles in the upper room, because remember now, the apostles have accepted Jesus Christ as the Son of God, as their promised Messiah. So they are 
while they are representing Israel, they are representing the remnant of Israel that has now been determined to be righteous before God, righteous before Jesus, because of their acceptance of him and who he is. So he's talking to them actually as members of the church, and he's comforting them and telling them about their future life, uh, the, the life during the church age that will lead up to the rapture of the church. So he's talking specifically in John 14 here about the rapture and the glory of that when he says in John 14, verse 1, Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Verse 4, and you know the way where I am going. So again, what a, what a precious passage of Scripture here uh, that Jesus conveys to the, 12, to the 11 apostles. Judas is obviously gone that he conveys to them, and he wants them to, to know that their heart should not be troubled, that they should be comforted by what uh, Jesus is relating to them, that he's going away, he's going to leave them at the um, resurrection. And Acts chapter 1, and at the end of his ministry, when he actually lifts off the earth and goes back to his father's house, it says he goes back to sit at the right hand of his father, but here it's telling us that while he's there, he's going to prepare a place for us, each one of us who have accepted him as our Lord and Savior. And he's making it emphatic that if this wasn't true, I would have told you. I am God. I would have told you if this wasn't true. So he's being emphatic in the positive here, that he's going to prepare a place and that I am going to come again. And he's describing the rapture. I'm going to come again because I'm going to receive you. And who's the audience? It's the apostles. The apostles at this point have accepted him as Lord and Savior. They are members of the church. So he says, I'm going to come and receive you to myself, and that where I am, there you may be also. So he's saying, I'm going to take you back to heaven. That's where I'm going to be for this period of time um, of at least seven years when we're going to marry and have a uh, wedding supper, and then I'm going to take you back with me when I go back the second time. He doesn't talk about that here. He's, he's talking about the rapture and the fact that he's taking them to heaven, and that's what's so important and so wonderful about this particular passage, that we, as the church, will be with Jesus forever, wherever he is. So whether it be in heaven or here on earth for a thousand years, we will be with him forever. Okay, we want to take some time now and answer a question from another listener uh, to our um, series of programs here. So we'll pick up the series uh, in point number four the next time. We have a question here from, let's see, Kathy in Kingsport. And Kathy's question is, is the battle of Armageddon a real battle or a spiritual battle? Well, that's an interesting point because we hear, Kathy, a lot about Armageddon. 
and uh, it being some great battle, and there are there are several battles that take place, um, either at the beginning of the tribulation or during the tribulation, like uh, like this particular Armageddon. There's another big battle that takes place at the end of the thousand year reign of Christ, what we call the millennial kingdom, milli. Uh, millennium is milliannum, thousand year. That's where that comes from. And of course, um, since we're defining terms, let's define Armageddon here. And again, Armageddon actually comes from two Hebrew words, two Hebrew words. The first one is har, and har is a Hebrew word for mount or big hill, if you will. And then Megiddo or Megiddo is actually a valley in north-central Israel. It's also called the uh, the Jezreel Valley. And in fact, if you look at, uh, for instance, a Google map on your computer today, uh, you will see something called the Jezreel River Valley that runs approximately northwest to southeast through north-central Israel. And it's a valley that's quite wide, and it's very flat, and there's a lot of produce. In fact, it's one of, if not the primary breadbasket, if you will, for the nation of Israel, because it's it's rich bottomland, it's very flat, and the soil is of very good quality. Uh, but on the it's it's flanked on the different sides by hills, but predominantly on the south by a um, series of hills, and one of which is called, they end up calling it Har Megiddo, and the word, the two words Har and Megiddo have been, if you will, kind of morphed together into Armageddon, uh, which is what we get in the English language today. So the hill, as I said, overlooks that lush, rich valley known as uh, today is uh, what Revelation would call Armageddon. So let's uh, let's go in the Scripture, um, Kathy. I hope you're listening, and to those in the audience, let's go to Revelation chapter 16 and uh, see what we find there about Armageddon. Revelation chapter 16, the last book in your Bible, and we're in the uh, middle of the tribulation period approximately as we get to Revelation 16. And let's look at verse 16. Uh, Actually, for context, let's go back up here and look at verse 15, because um, those of you that have been listening along with us, you know that we've answered a uh, question recently about uh, the thief in the night idea and who, who is the thief in the night and when does that apply? And we, of course, came to the biblical uh, conclusion that the thief is a reference to Christ coming back at his second coming to judge the world uh, in its unrighteousness, that the thief has nothing to do whatsoever with the church and with the rapture of the church. And yes, while the church does not know when Jesus is coming back, uh, it is called the doctrine of imminency, that it could happen at any time, and there are no signs in the Bible unlike the second coming that has many signs um, forewarning about the second coming, there are no signs that need to take place uh, before Christ comes back for his church. But nowhere in the New Testament, as we emphasized in that episode, nowhere in the New Testament 
uh, does he refer to himself as coming for the church like a thief? Because the thief, according to John 10, has a very negative connotation, and that's why he applies it to the second coming. But it says, Behold, in verse 15 of Revelation 16, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his clothes so that he will not walk about naked and men will not see his shame. Verse 16, And they gathered them together at the place, which in Hebrew is called Har Megiddon, or Armageddon. So you notice there that it says that he gathers them together. The armies will be gathered. It is a broad, broad plain. And on the west side of it, uh, at the end, you have the major seaport off the Mediterranean of uh, a port called Haifa. So very well, they could be, and there are, there are air bases. I know there are Israeli air bases there in the Jezreel Valley or Armageddon. So you can see that is what in military terms they would call a marshalling of the armies, a marshalling of all the equipment to be brought into the country in preparation for an attack. But the actual physical attack, Kathy, to answer your question is, it's a real battle, but it doesn't happen at Armageddon. They use that name because it's a loose reference in the um, book of Revelation, but actually it is an actual battle that takes place in and around Jerusalem, in and around Jerusalem. So the armies gather at Armageddon or Armageddon, but they move their men and their equipment basically south and east towards the town and the the surrounding areas of Jerusalem. So let's go to Zechariah to make that point. Zechariah, second to the last book of the Old Testament. Zechariah, and we're looking for Zechariah chapter 14, which would be right at the end of the book of Zechariah. And in Zechariah 14, we read in verse 1, Behold, A day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you, talking to Israel, will be divided among you, Israel. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city will be captured, the houses plundered, the women ravished, and half the city exiled. But the rest of the people will not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations, as when, as when he fights on the day of battle. In that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives will be split in the middle from east to west by a very large valley, so that half of the mountain will move forward toward the north and the other half towards the south. So the point here is, Kathy, to answer your question, Armageddon is a real battle, but it does not take place in an area called Armageddon. It takes place, actually, in and around the city of Jerusalem, and that's where Jesus Christ goes to battle against the armies of the world. Remember, if we don't talk again, I'll be seeing you in the air. Thank you for joining us on today's Exploring Bible Prophecy. Exploring Bible Prophecy is a production of WHCB. Learn more at whcbradio.org.